The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. If you have a Bible, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew, and we're in Matthew 28. So this is the very end of the book of Matthew, Matthew 28. Um, we, are, we have been preaching through the book of Matthew, and the book of Matthew is all about our King Jesus who saves people to be his disciples. And if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew 28. We have been preaching through this book together. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to, pre- we're going to look at the last 15 verses, or the first 15 verses of this last chapter in the book of Matthew. So we're going to read those for us, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to talk about what this resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead means for us in our lives together. So let's read Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the, day, toward, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, "'Do not be afraid.' For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. And they prepared quickly, and they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with all the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell them, his disciples came by night and stole him away when we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, he will be satisfied. We will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this together, um, this extraordinary moment of the resurrection of Jesus, we pray you would help us. Um, to know what this means for our lives now. It can feel so far away and so uh, outlandish, but we pray that our lives will be shaped around this man who was dead and whose lungs filled with air again, and that he might breathe new life in us today. So I pray this all in his name. Amen. I don't know if you guys know what the term, uh, what an unfunded mandate is. Do you guys know what an unfunded mandate is? Does that make sense at all? Does anybody know what that phrase is? It's this kind of phrase that comes up around kind of government operations where they will make a mandate of what you need to do, you must do this to be in compliance with some regulation. But they don't give you any money or funding to make it happen, right? They kind of change the standards, and then they don't give you anything to help you make, meet those standards. kind of like, um, like if you're when you were a kid or if you're a kid and your parents say, go clean the car, but they don't give you any cleaning equipment, they don't, they don't give you the keys to the car, they don't give you anything to help you make that happen. Like you're somehow supposed to break in the car and clean it <laughs> and then make it better without any help at all. 
Um, that's what an unfunded mandate is. Um, and when we get to the end of the book of Matthew, this idea of an unfunded mandate is kind of the kind of creeps to the surface at the very end of the book. Because all through the book, as we've been looking through the book of Matthew, we, I think we, we've started about a year ago, um, Jesus has been laying out what does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to live in his kingdom? What does it mean to be like him and to join his grace and mission in this world? And what does it mean? So we looked at Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount at 10, uh, 6 to 10, 5 to 10. That was all about the Sermon on the Mount, life in the kingdom. What is it like to live in his kingdom? And then from 11 to 16, we looked at this whole section in the book of Matthew. It was about the demands of Jesus, where if he's the king, he's the one calling the shots, and what is he demanding of us? And we saw that some of those demands were simple, like, love me, take up your cross and follow me. Those aren't very easy things to do. And then we looked at the middle of the book of Matthew where it talks about what does it mean to be a life of disciples together, right? Um, a bunch of weird people who are trying to love Jesus together. How do we do that? And he kind of laid out, what does the life of the family look like? And then here we are at the end of the book of Matthew seeing all of that is said as the king who is the true king and the last real king develops and establishes his kingdom. And here we get to the end of this book and it's like, okay, if that's what Jesus is laying out, how does, that, how does that happen? How do we do that? Where is the power and energy coming from? Because if anybody is like me, um, I feel like overwhelmed and exhausted and unable to do much, most, or any of what Jesus has laid out for us in his book and his commands. So the question is, is our discipleship this unfunded mandate? Well, that's where we get to the end of the book of Matthew. And Jesus is not dead in the grave. He comes alive again. Right here, we have in this book all these uh, demands about what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a disciple? Yeah, those are all real hard and true. And being a disciple is not always exactly the most fun thing. But it is intended to be shaped around the person of Jesus. Because our sin and all of our problems are taken care of when he dies in our place on the cross. He breathed his last breath out of love to die and save us. And then when he rises from the grave, he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his position with him. He gives us all the good things about him. And now when he breathes in this, this first breath of air, and right, can you imagine with me, the, what the story is about is a dead corpse. I don't know if you guys have ever been to a funeral for a family member or somebody. A dead corpse. <gasps> Breathing in air. I mean, we just had Halloween, right? <laughs> How many people get freaked out by going to like the haunted houses or whatever and they, people like zombies coming out from the corners, right? There's not zombie Jesus, just so you know, right? <laughs> this is resurrected, new life Jesus. And what does that mean for our lives? How does that empower and strengthen and change the very direction of our lives? Right? That's what this last chapter of the book of Matthew is all about. Because as Jesus rises from the grave and breathes in life again, the triumphant king gives new life to his disciples. That's the main point of this whole chapter, or at least the section that we're looking at. The triumphant king gives new life to his disciples. That's what this is about. So what we're going to do is we are going to look at this chapter. And this is not going to be necessarily like a typical way we do our sermons, um, because the typical way we would do our sermons is kind of like break up the passage into three or four sections and look at this. But because this is the cataclysmic moment of the resurrection of Christ, this is the thing that changes everything, changes everything about our lives in Christ, um, 
we are going to have a 15-point sermon this morning. <laughs> and so, uh, Jay, we don't have slides going up for this, do we? Okay, we do? Great. Next slide. So we're going to look at 15 ways we experience the explosive power of Jesus' resurrection. Just so you know, this is going to be like a two-hour sermon. We're going to bang through these real fast, all right? We're just going to plow through these because this chapter is just chock full of life, of what Jesus' resurrection does and the immediate moment for his disciples. And this is what he is doing in our lives right now. So, right, kind of like when a bomb explodes, you got all the shrapnel that goes everywhere. We're just going to kind of pick up the pieces and say, okay, how do we see the resurrection of Jesus changing our lives today? So the first way we see this is actually to kind of borrow from the last chapter is our tombs are borrowed, <laughs> Right? How do we experience, how does this change our lives? Our tombs are borrowed. Right? I don't know if you remember this moment from the, resur- from the death of Christ. Right? Verse 51, chapter 27, and behold, the curtain was torn in two. Right? He had died. The presence of God was unleashed in the world. In verse 52, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Right? The exact moment where Jesus dies for our sins, the exact moment, people are raised from the dead because the creation cannot contain the power of Christ and how it changes the lives of his people. The saints, I think it was talking about people who were disciples of Christ. That's why they're called saints. They were disciples and they uh, followed Christ and they probably died during his three years of ministry. And here, the moment he dies in their place for their sins, new life is injected into their bodies, and they come out of the grave, right? So that, for us, just so you know, we all kind of have, some of us have, like, life insurance policies and, like, plans for, like, where we want to be cremated or buried or whatever. Um, Just so you know, those are just, like, temporary leases on that property, (laughs) right? Your grave is rented. Like, I rent our apartment. It means I can leave it whenever I want. I don't own it. I'm not responsible for pipes breaking and all that stuff. Your grave is rented, it is leased to you for a moment, and then one day you will be recreated, renewed, and breathe in a life in the new creation of Christ. Right? If you are in Christ, your grave is only borrowed. If you're not in Christ, the grave is only the beginning. The, the resurrection of Christ, it means that we are not left to ourselves, we are not left to this world, and it's just kind of like constant decay and disappointment. Even though we are all saddened by death, right? Some of us have felt that this week. If you're in Christ, that grave is only borrowed. And one day we will see him face to face. We will come out of that grave like a firework. The second thing we see, right? We're going to keep moving through this pretty quickly. His power is for the weak. Verses 1 through 4. Do you Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and either Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Of course, there's an irony here, right? Here's, basically, these are Navy SEALs, right? (laughs) Like, these are like beastly guys who are guarding the tomb of Jesus, and they get so scared by seeing just a little faint image of this angel and they fall down like dead men outside of the tomb of a dead man they're supposed to be protecting, right? There's a bit of like, like a poetic irony in this whole thing. But you notice what they don't do, right? The angel doesn't come down and said, hey guys, we're in the same business together. We do what our, what our boss tells us to do and we're just going to compare some notes, right? 
the angels come down and their focus is actually on rolling away the stone so that the women can see that Jesus is not there anymore. Right? The angel doesn't come, there, come down and roll the stone so Jesus can get out. Jesus, by the time this is recorded, Jesus is already gone from the grave. He's already resurrected and he's already vacated and moved out. So the stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus can get out, but so that Mary and Magdalene and these weak people who are trembling with fear can get in to see that their faith is restored and secured. Right? That, what's going on here is not so much that Jesus has something that he needs, but something that Jesus is showing them, he is risen, right? These angels, this angel, they know who's in charge, and his power is for this very purpose, to serve weak people like you and me, right? The struggles that we face in life are not primarily our problems. The struggles that we face in life are the stones that sit over our faith, that between that are between our hearts and Jesus and seeing and knowing and trusting him, right? These stone was rolled away so that their faith could come into the tomb and see he's not there. It's real. It actually happened. For us, our problems, I cannot secure, I cannot promise you that our problems are going to go away, right? But what we do pray for and what we want is for the spirit to come and by his power to remove those things that stand in the way of our hearts resting and enjoying who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. That's his power for weak people. His power doesn't come down to Mary Magdalene and these Mary and be like, where's everybody else? What are you doing wrong? <laughs> you jerk face? You left me. No, his power comes and it serves weak people like you and me. So we're going to move on, verses 4 to 5. His resurrection, what does it do for us in our lives? It protects his family. Right? We got all five, yeah, so we got five of them at a time. So we're just, you, guys, you guys are kind of looking ahead, and you could preach this for me. But he protects his family with his resurrection power, verses 4 and 5. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angels said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who is crucified. You see, Right, the power comes in, these angels reveal who they are, and they come in and do what Jesus said, and their power does what? Gets rid of the guards. <laughs> it protects his family. Right, the angels speak to the women and not to the soldiers, because all through the Bible, God comes and dwells among weak people to protect them with his power. Right, if you ever read through the Old Testament, especially the parts where God's doing incredible things, God's always going out of his way to make sure that the people of Israel know, um, you didn't contribute anything to this. This is all my power. I'm the one in charge, right? Think about like when he led the people out of Exodus, right? right? Almost intentionally kind of like makes them weak and like you've got to just depend on me and this is my deal. And you think of all the stories through the Old Testament where God shows up, says, you know what? Instead of having an army of 50,000 people, 50,000 men, right, burly guys who've got swords and hatchets and can go out there and do some damage, um, let's get 300 guys who drink water weirdly, and we're just going to kind of lead them, and that's how we're going to destroy the enemy. Because God will always make sure that his family is protected, but they must rest on him and trust in him because of his power. We must rest only in his power to save them, Right? God goes out of his way to show, I'm drawing among you, my power is for you, and I've got this. 
that's a little bit of what's going on in this moment where the, the, the angel shows up, power is for the, the weak women. Pick up in verse 6, fourth thing we see is his promises are absolute, right? I, I love this. I don't know if you guys, how much you dwell on this passage, but verse 6, this is the angel addressing the woman. He is not here. He is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Right? That's what we're picking up on here is he has risen as he said. Right? This is, uh, this is something that Jesus says all through the book of Matthew at the end here. So the three, he says it three times. Verse 16, 21. Jesus says, 16, 21. For that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that just happened, suffered many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and the third day be raised. Right? And he says this two more times through the book of Matthew. And so it's kind of ironic that the disciples, like they've heard Jesus say this, and they're always kind of like, Jesus, no, you can't go die. That's like, that's a bad business plan, Jesus. <laughs> right? But Jesus is like, no, I'm going to go die in your place, it's going to happen, but I'm going to be raised from the th on the third day. But they forget that last part. They've forgotten it. Often when we look at the promises of God, we, we forget that they are in God's time and God's way. And we kind of forget. We're like, God, you said you were going to take care of my problems. You are going to take care of my enemies. You said that you were going to provide for me and help me and heal me. Yeah, those are in God's hand and God's time and God's way. We can't we can't be like the disciples and forget half of the promise that God's the one in charge. Right? And it's kind of like the angels kind of show up. You ever have those moments where you're kind of like, um, I told you so? You know? <laughs> I told you so. Jesus has told us. He's going to rise from the grave. His promises are so sure that even death cannot get in the way of them, getting, of them happening. Right? We all think, I, I don't know how often you guys think about this, but it's like, I think, you know, I want to provide for my family. I want to help my kids. I want, to, I want to see my family grow and thrive. But I could get hit by a car tomorrow, and that would totally change the game plan, right? Uh, presumably, I'd die. Um, Jesus has said, my promises are so sure, and they're so reliable, they're so true, true for you, that even the power of death cannot keep them from happening and strengthening and empowering your life. Second, we've got to keep moving on. Fifth thing, he redeems gender. I know this is a weird one to pull out of here. right? We don't always use the word gender all the time. It's not exactly a common word sometimes. But verse 7, then go quickly, tell his disciples that he was raised from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. What I'm picking up here is not so much of what's said directly in verse 7, but who it's said to. Verse 7, go and tell them. It's said to a bunch of women to go and tell his disciples, the men who are not there, that Jesus has raised from the dead. We talked about this last week, but it, it was common at the time. Uh, women, their testimony was not allowed in court because it was inadmissible and women were valued lower than slaves. Obviously, that's dead wrong and sinful. And the first thing that happens out of the gate of Jesus' resurrection is he says, you know what? Women are equal and valuable and of equal dignity and, and worth. And they will be used to declare my kingdom and advance my mission. They will, be, they will be valued and esteemed so much so that, right, Mary Magdalene, remember, Mary Magdalene was possessed by seven demons and Jesus had kicked them out. 
right? Now she is possessed, so to speak, with the resurrecting power of Christ, and she must and will join his mission as an empowered woman to join his mission, right? This is, if you're ever like, people are like, well, can, how can you trust that these stories are true? Look, this book was written at a time, like I just said, where women's testimony was inadmissible in court. <laughs> so here's a story that says the very first witness of the resurrected king were at least one, if not multiple women, who then went and told the guys who were so scared they couldn't, they couldn't show up, they were hiding off in a corner, right? The point of this is to say, not that men and women have the same roles in life. Men and women have very different roles, and that's fine and valuable and beautiful. But they are of equal dignity, value, and worth. And the kingdom of Christ will not tolerate the diminishing and degradation of women or men, either side of that, as a part of his kingdom. The reality is that often I see um, along these lines, just to make a comment, I've, I'm always impressed by how it seems to me that women just seem to outstrip men with godliness in our lives. Right? If you know my wife, you would know uh, Michelle is much more godly than Jacob. <laughs> She's much more patient and merciful. Um, she, she doesn't go on angry rants or tirades or gets depressed or anything like that. She's just cool waters. Michelle is just much more godly than I am. But God has redeemed us so that we benefit and grow from each other. That's kind of what's going on here. You guys track with me? All right. We're going to move on. Verse 7 again. His renewing mission is for his community. Right? There's a lot of things that are going on here. Right? There's all these different powers. and All the ways with the resurrecting power is just exploding on the scene. And I don't know if you picked up on this in verse 7 as well. Tell his disciples that he was raised from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Right? What's going on here is that these weak and cowering men will be told of the resurrection of Christ by these women of faith, and they will all, both men and women, join in his, dec- in his mission to seek and save the lost. Right? He's, his first moment is to say, go and tell them this has happened. I've been raised from the dead, and then just tell them to keep going. Like, we, we're going to go meet a Galilee, and we've got a mission to do. This is called the mission of God. It's the Missio Dei. This is what's God's mission from the very beginning of the Bible. God is always pursuing his people and telling his people, here's where I'm going and what I'm accomplishing, and I want you with me. Right? He welcomes the strong women of faith and the weak, women, weak men. All of them are joining his mission. Strong and weak, good and bad. This is not a solo mission. They must do it together. There is something specific that God is accomplishing and showing us. Look, this, is a, a, this is a ragamuffin community of people that don't have their act together, and I want them all on my mission. Right? That's the, that's the type of church we are, just so you know. A bunch of weird, weak people who don't have our acts together. Strong people in the faith, some people who are weak in the faith. We are all called to join Jesus' mission, right? He does not leave anybody behind that is in his family. So if you feel weak, if you don't feel like, what can I do for God's mission? I don't know my Bible very well. I don't really have, like, great things that I've done for Jesus. Well, Jesus is saying to you, I haven't left you behind. I want you in. My resurrection power is what empowers you to join his mission. Verse 8, seventh thing we see, our obedience is driven by joy. 
So they departed quickly from the tomb for fear, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Right? Jesus says, join my mission. Be a part of my community. Things have changed. I've risen from the dead. This is all new. And what is their response? Okay, Jesus, I've got to prove it to you that I love you. No. Their response is to say, if a dead man breathed in life, <laughs> okay, let's do this. I, I don't have to work to get his love. I don't have to work to get his approval. I work out of and live out of his love and affirmation and print approval. Right? Imagine this, all the ways in which we struggle to obey him. What if we had in our minds an image of the resurrected Christ over the eyes of our hearts with every command in his mouth saying, follow me. Right? What if we had this image of the resurrected Christ who has conquered sin and death and Satan standing before us in our minds when he says, love your enemy as yourself. Give mercy to those who hurt you. Pray for the needs of your community. Things that are hard. Bear with those who are hard to bear with. Put to death our lusts and jealousies and envy and anger. What if we had in our heads, in our minds, over our hearts, the resurrected Christ saying, I love you and I'm empowering you to do this. Like, as the resurrected Christ, right? Imagine he is just dead. A dead corpse that breathed in life speaking those commands to us? Do you think it would fill us with a certain amount of power, joy, perspective, right? I'm not sure what your, your tradition is from coming, uh, growing up, what church you grew up a part of. Some churches heavy on, you got to show God you love him. Prove it. Work hard. Don't be a, a wuss Christian, right? Well, Jesus comes and says, I know that you're weak, and I don't want you to prove, me, prove anything to me by your obedience. I want you to work and obey my commands out of love with a joy, right? right? I don't know about you, but this strikes me that they ran and they were filled with great joy. Okay, we're going to keep moving on. Our hearts are renewed, right? By the resurrecting power of Christ part of the explosive power of his resurrection in our lives. Our hearts are renewed. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Right? This reminds me. I don't know this, I'm going to read Psalm 30. Tell me if this sounds familiar to this passage. Psalm 30, verses 1 through 5. I extol you, O God, for you have drawn me up. You have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I have cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought, my, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, or from hell. You have restored my life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something that these women are experiencing? They have had the anguish of seeing the death of Christ, being the victim of so many injustices, of dying in their place intentionally. And they have done uh, these nights of sorrow and depression, and yet here they come to his grave 
and suddenly their lives are bursting with joy and their hearts are renewed because of what the Lord has done. Right? Do you, do you struggle with depression? Do you struggle with anxiety? Do you struggle with dark thoughts? Do you struggle with God? Have you forgotten me? Look to the cross and resurrection of Christ where he died in your place under the frown of God so that you could live each day under the joyful smile of God to renew your hearts with his very presence among us every day. That, that is what Jesus is accomplishing here. This, this, this is the first thing that is accomplished in their lives. Their hearts respond, right? They respond with, Jesus, yes! Renewed in who you are, not because of anything that they... Right? So just so you're making sure you're, you're tracking this, the angel said, go and do this, right? Go and tell the disciples about what's happened. And in the middle of obeying Jesus joyfully, they get interrupted with Jesus himself and they're reminded again, you're not going to obey to get renewed, right? You are renewed so that you can obey and enjoy, right? That's what he is accomplishing in their lives right now, right? The resurrection says Jesus is your source, not your obedience, not how good a day you've had, not how bad a day you've had. Jesus himself will always and forever only be the source of renewing joy and obedience in our lives. That is what is being accomplished here in their hearts. First thing, renewed hearts to experience this God, not just to know him and obey him, but to experience him. That's why we just constantly talk about this phrase, loving Jesus together, because we want a felt Jesus, not just an example, though he is, and a king, though he is, we want a felt Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 9 again. There's a lot going on in each of these verses, so forgive me as we keep delving into each one. But verse 9, Jesus blesses the ordinary. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. Right? The, legitimately, like, we don't exactly like, greetings, Jordan. How are you doing today? Like, we don't exactly use that sort of phrase. But what the original word here is just kind of like, hey, guys. <laughs> it's just like an ordinary, hey, how's it going? What's up, man? Like, it's just like an ordinary, like, I mean, you have, to, you have to appreciate how funny this situation is, right? He has just breathed in into a dead corpse a new life, right? A fresh breath of air. The, a dead man has expanded his lungs and breathed in air, and he, got, he walks out of the grave without even needing the, the, the stone removed. And his disciples, who have been totally freaking out over this whole situation, they meet him, and he's just kind of like, what's up, guys? Right? <laughs> It doesn't make you laugh. Like, it's just it's so funny. But what Jesus is doing here, I think, is he is just using a common phrase because it's not to diminish the value of the resurrection. But he is saying, I love just ordinary people. I love just being among and using the ordinary means of life to express his resurrection power. Right? He, he's, not, he's not a hype Jesus. He's not like over-the-top Jesus. He's not just showing you like, uh, look, I can do incredible things, like I just raised myself from the dead. Um, how tall do you want a skyscraper? You know, like, he's not doing magic tricks. He's entering into the normal, like, this is what you actually, the, the gospels go out of their way to show this, right? John, in the end of John, after the resurrection of Jesus, John has this incredible moment where Jesus, um, it's the third time that John reports the resurrection of Jesus, and it says this, 
right? The disciples were out fishing. When they got out, uh, out on land, right, they got out from the boat, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid in it and bread. So presumably, uh, this was Jesus who had done this, right? Jesus, resurrection, he still liked camping, right? Jesus likes camping, making fish, eating bread. He said to them, bring some fish out just to you caught. So Simon Peter went about and hauled the net to shore full of large fish, 153 of them. And there were so many, and yet uh, not, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Right? Jesus, even after his resurrection, he's like, you know what? Coffee and eggs. I really just need my breakfast. He enters into the ordinary. Hey, guys, how's it going? He enters into the normal rhythms of our life. Because Jesus is not calling you as a part of his resurrection to go out and have like constant like top-of-the-mountain experiences, go to constant retreats or conferences. Those are certainly great and helpful. He enters into the normal realities of your daily life and says, this is where I want to live out my power. This is where I want my resurrection to live. This is where I want my resurrection to change your life. How do you greet each other? How do you talk to each other in your family or in your apartment or at church? Are you excited to have a meal together and just to share the regular, ordinary life that God's created for us? It's incredible that Jesus, here he is, having accomplished the one thing that everybody fears that they can never accomplish. And he blesses the ordinary. The good gifts that God has given us are the very context where he wants to live out his resurrection. So if you're wondering, how do I, how do I as a Christian, how do I live in the resurrection of Jesus? Make your breakfast, care for those around you, say hi, <laughs> and greet the people that Jesus died to save and rose from the grave so that we could be renewed day by day in his presence and joy. All right, this, is what we're, this is why we do our missional community groups, a part of it is. We don't just kind of get together because like, we want to get Christians together and we want to have our holy huddle and talk about how bad everybody else is. The reason we have our missional community groups is so that we can develop ordinary rhythms of life, shoving food into our face, talking about the, the daily needs of life and the week, and enjoying the resurrection power of Jesus to help us to follow him. It's very ordinary. There's nothing very impressive about it. But there is an incredibly impressive and extraordinary king who loves to bless the ordinary. All right, the last half of this, and this is probably obviously on your mind already, but the 10th thing that we see, right, we are plowing through these, and I promise we're gonna, we're gonna finish this, we're gonna land this plane soon. Don't worry, guys, it's gonna, it's gonna land soon. Our worship is personal, right? They fell at his feet and worshiped him. Just, you know, the basic point of this is you will either worship yourself or you will worship Jesus. There are no other options. Jesus draws us to himself so that the king who has died in our place can be the very one that we focus on and enjoy. Right? That's what we're seeing here. Jesus must be felt, and it is our worship that is personal. Do you want real meaning and joy in your life? Then come to the feet of Jesus and find a king who knows everything about you and yet died for you and wants you in his family. His worship is personal. All right. The, tenth, the 11th thing, out of verse 10. Um, verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, do not be, so they've seen, hey, hey, how's it going? Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. 
and there they will see me. All right, imagine, imagine this moment, right? They have just seen a man that they saw die on the cross just two days ago, breathe new life into his lungs, step into their, the, the path where they're walking and say, don't be afraid. Do you think they're going to doubt him? <laughs> Do you think that they're going to second guess Jesus? Uh, but don't you know, the Romans are going to come and kill us. Uh, the disciples, they're, aren't, they're not going to believe us. Uh, there's a lot of problems here, Jesus. <laughs> no, Jesus says, don't be afraid because of who I am, right? These, the fears that we have in our lives, Jesus steps in the way of them and says, do not be afraid, I'm with you, right? As he sends us on his mission to join him, enjoy to join him, enjoy him, and follow him, there are as many fears that come into our lives. Will I do this again? Will I go back to my addictions? Will I continue to screw up? Will I eventually fail? What if people find out this out about me? Number of fears. And Jesus steps in the way of that and says, do not be afraid. Everything's different because I'm here. Not because of me thing in you, but because of me, right? This doesn't mean that we have to be dumb about our, 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 the temptations that we face in life, right? We, if, if you're struggling with addiction, you need to be going to your AANA celebration recovery meetings because that's a way in which we've put those things to death, right? If you struggle with how we do relationships or finances or whatever, involving the community in our lives helps us to be able to walk wisely, right? So it's not just saying, like, don't ever be worried about and be foolhardy. But it does say to the deepest fears of our lives, do not be afraid. Like for me, I'll tell you, one of the big things in my life that I'm, I'm, is a constant on my mind every week is that maybe like you, I see week after week, one pastor after another just drop, like, drop out. Moral, moral failing, doing something he shouldn't be doing, fails out of ministry, crushes not only his family, but does damage to the church. I'm constantly afraid. 30 years down the line, I'm going to lose my grip. I'm going to do something stupid and sinful. It's going to destroy everything in my life. It's a constant fear of mine. I had a friend of mine bring this dynamic up to my attention and say, you know what? You are being controlled by fear and letting fear drive your obedience rather than love. This is what, this is what the Bible talks about, right? This, you throw up this verse... 1 John 4, 18 and 19, there is no fear in love, but perfect, fear, perfect love casts off fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. This is John playing out this whole dynamic, right? Jesus steps in our way and says, don't follow me, don't live with me, don't obey me out of fear, because you're going to get whacked. Love me and follow after me, and that will cast out the fears of your lives. All right, we're going to pick up because we've got to keep moving forward. His family is for the weak, verse 10, right? Did you, did you pick up on this? Do not be afraid. Go and tell who? My brothers. Right? These are the disciples who had just disobeyed him, who had just forsaken him. One of them committed suicide because he was so ashamed of what he'd done. The other one was so foolhardy and said, I will, never I, will never, I will never disown you. And not only does he do it once, but he does it three times. And Jesus told him it was going to happen, right? These are all a bunch of weak guys who have no business hanging out with Jesus. And what does he do? The moment he's resurrected, he says, go and tell my brothers. They're not just my friends. They're not just my employees. They're not just guys that I, that I share a table with, that I meet in the bar or whatever. These are my brothers. 
They're my family. <laughs> Which I think gives us a bunch of hope because um, if you're anything like me, feeling overwhelmed with life, unable to keep your life together, unable to get ahead, uh, maybe you're a weak person like me, and you need a compassionate Jesus who says, you know what? You're still my sister. You're still my brother. I want you in my family. Verse 10 again, 13th thing we see here. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is maybe one of the more incredible things, is that Jesus doesn't just want to use them. He doesn't want them to be a part of his family, but he wants to see them face to face. Have you ever had somebody who's betrayed you and hurt you in a way that you're just kind of like, if I saw them, I'm going to punch them in the throat? Anybody like that? Right? Jesus has every right to treat his disciples that way. Jesus says, I want them to see me, and I want to hug them, and I want them to be with me. Right? And it's not just because he wants them to be around, because he wants them to be changed by who he is. Right? Let's throw out this last verse here. 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. Right? This is what we just talked about, God being God's family. And what we will be has not yet appeared. So there's something that's happened in us now, something that's going to happen then. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. There is a power in the very presence and sight of Christ that we see by faith now in our hearts and that we long for, and that when we see him, he will break the sky open and descend down to a bunch of weak people who are trying to obey him, doing their best to follow him in Manchester and to be faithful disciples here, and our eyes will see him. And our entire being will be transformed into something kind of like what we got, but better. And something we can't even imagine. Because he wants us to see him and to know him and to be with him and to be like him. Right? That's what he's holding out for the disciples. Guys, I want you to get a foretaste of what's going to I want you to get a little sample or an appetizer of what that's going to be like. So they're going to see him in, in Galilee. But guys, I, I want you to know the real thing. I want you to be renewed and changed. All the brokenness, all the weakness, all the failures, all the sins, all the things that we think should keep us from him, all of those things Jesus wants us, how does he want us to get rid of them? Not by doing our rosary beads, not, by, yeah, not, not even by coming to church, but by seeing him face to face. That's how he wants to fully heal and redeem and restore us. Right, this triumphant king gives us new life, not in some way outside of him, but always in and through him. All right, I know you guys are watching your clocks, and we've got to finish this up. His history, verses 11 to 15, right? This is the great report that goes out and says, Jesus, uh, he wasn't raised from the dead. His disciples came in at night, and somehow a bunch of uh, carpenters overpowered Navy SEALs and the Green Berets, and they got them out of the way, rolled the stone across the tomb, pulled out his dead body, and stole it, Right? The point of this whole story is to say, look, this is not surprising and it's been happening all through history. People are always trying to undermine the story of Jesus. It never works. He is the access of history. Everything revolves around him, right? This story, actually, the early church stories go that this, this report about this, how he, uh, his body had been stolen, was existed up in about 200s. So about 150 years after Jesus was resurrected, the story was still being passed around. Fifteenth thing that we see, and we'll end with this, the enemy's lies never win. 
right? These, these lies actually, if this, sto- this whole story about the resurrection of Jesus was a whole fake, you typically don't record the source material for the people who are trying to undermine your story because their lies never win, right? Jesus, in the end, if you, want to, if you want a summary of the book of Revelation and the end times and all that stuff, it's these two words, Jesus wins. That's the king is triumphant. He will always win. These lies never win. The lies in your, in your life that are trying to undermine your obedience to Jesus, your joy in Jesus, your ability to follow him and join his mission, all those lies, Jesus looks at them and says, get out of here. He wins, and he will give you new life in him. Right? This is a strong statement because Jesus does not tolerate lies trying to undermine his people following and knowing him. Those things actually make him angry. He will win. He will fill your heart with his love. He will help you to follow and obey him. So how do we, just as a, as a church, how do we begin to live in this and apply this? I just want you to think of this. The people that sit in this room right now, people next to you, whether you like them or not, <laughs> whether they're your favorite people or, you know, like not your favorite people, I love all of you the same, just so you know. But Jesus looks at each one of us and says, I went to the cross for this person. All the dark baggage and sin in their lives, I went to the cross for that. I died for the wrath of God under that for this person so that they could experience my resurrection power. We have no right complaining and condemning what God has redeemed in our church. And so our response should be every glimmer of grace, every way in which we see obedience, every way in which we see happiness resting in Jesus and the people around us and their lives, every effort that that we see them growing and loving Jesus should birth new life gratitude in our hearts for the people around us. This is the community that Jesus has made. This is why the triumphant king will give give new life to his disciples so that we can be joyful, happy people following him. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at this and tried to begin to, to, to delve into what the resurrection means for us, I pray that our eyes and our hearts would be filled with the power and goodness of our triumphant king and that he would give us new life today, that you would refresh us. Father, as we, um, maybe there are hearts, there are people this morning who are weary. Spirit, would you give them a taste, each of us a taste of your smile and power in our lives because of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for us and what he's continuing to do. In his name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.